This is the IBJ Podcast for the week of October 31st, 2022, brought to you by Taft. I'm your host, Mason King. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. I'm going to get right to the point this week. Our guest is Ben Lytle, who longtime residents will remember as the former CEO of Indianapolis-based health insurer Anthem. He captained the strategy that turned Anthem into one of the largest health insurers in the nation and a publicly traded firm on the New York Stock Exchange. In fact, the current corporate headquarters of Anthem, recently rebranded Elevance Health, is named the L. Ben Lytle Center. He also founded, took public, and sold the insurance brokerage Accordia. But don't think of him as a career corporate guy. He started his career as an expert in technology and information systems. He's an entrepreneur at heart and in recent years has co-founded two companies with his son, Hugh, both of them related to healthcare. But he is not here to talk about the past. He's here to talk about the next 30 years, a period he expects to be filled with massive changes in the way we work and live. The pace of life will continue to accelerate and become more turbulent. He says institutions such as government, education, religion, news media, and corporate America will be disrupted and become less reliable. So he has written a book titled The Potentialist, Your Future in the New Reality of the Next 30 Years. Its purpose is to help us, and especially people at the beginning of their careers, develop the skills and mindset necessary to succeed in that environment. It's pretty clear he's not the kind of guy who's content to have his name on the building and then slump into retirement. He joined me in the IBJ podcast studio to discuss the book and how we can thrive alongside incredible changes as we live longer, work for longer, and develop more intimate relationships with technology. Here's our conversation. It's my pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Ben Lytle, a serial entrepreneur, corporate executive, philanthropist, public speaker, fitness enthusiast, and now the author of The Potentialist, Your Future in the New Reality of the Next 30 Years. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I appreciate it. I think we're both coming at uh, the topic of the book from kind of the same place uh, in that I think we both have young people in our lives who we care about and we want to be able to help. Um, I have a six-year-old son, and you have dedicated this book to your grandchildren, of which there are eight? Eight. Is that right? How old are they? They're 19 to 27. Oh, okay. Oh, so they're they're well into their career. Yeah. Now, when I started the book, they were still 14. So this was about a five-year, you know, project. So, uh, so they've uh, they're they're a little older now. But I the book was literally written for them, and I would. I would roll back from my uh, from my from my desk, and I've got all their pictures up on the wall, and I'd say, "Write it for them. Write the truth, and as as, as close as you can see it, and as clear as you can say it." And so that's really what drove me. Was it a problem that whenever you'd bring up these topics at family gatherings, they'd roll their eyes and run away? No, it was it really wasn't. I I, I give them credit for that. It, this this is not a problem of lack of interest. I think uh, people are just. 
I've never gone to a crowd and they said, oh, no, you know, we, we're not big. Our people fall asleep. That doesn't happen. Uh, the problem is, and, and, and really, uh, Alvin Toffler, who was, you know, a bit of a mentor of mine. You were, wait a second. Hold on just a second. That, you dropped a bomb there. Alvin Toffler, I mean, the futurist who wrote Future Shock, I mean, that was, I mean, probably one of the best selling books of the latter half of the 20th century. How, how was he? Uh, one of you, one of your mentors. He actually spoke here in Indianapolis at the Accordia board seminar, and at my invitation. And uh, and he found me actually. Uh, um, I, I'm, I I honestly don't know exactly how. I think it might have been Tom Peters. Uh, who was a very big business writer, you know, in the 80s and the 90s. Uh, Tom had decided to do us, uh, include us in one of his uh, excellence book series. Uh, and so he sent a team of people in to study because that's what he did. He did a good job on research and people he wrote about. And so anyway, I think Tom might have met because I know he knew Toffler, but uh, you know, one day I got a got a call that there's this guy on the phone wants to talk to me. And his name's Alvin Toffler. Of course, I almost broke my arm because he had been a hero, you know. And, and the reason was was that a lot of the concepts that I built uh, Anthem and Accordia around, which both altered two major industries, and still those those alterations still exist out there today uh, uh, in healthcare and insurance brokerage. I used a lot of Toffler's principles of push down accountability and decentralization, treating people as a market of one, trying to give them as customized a feel as possible. And I think that got back to him. At least that's what he said. I heard you were using a, a lot of my principles. And so he and I got, came to, got to know each other. He, I invited him out to speak at the board seminar. We exchanged calls for you know number of years. And That's fascinating. Um, I mean, I think we read that in high school. And, uh, and and you know, I got the COVID a few months ago, and my brain is, hasn't quite recovered yet. Yeah. So I've I've lost the ability to to name some things. the co- The concept that I remember the most from Future Shock is something that you allude to, at least in the book, quite a bit. It is the quickening pace with which uh, technology progresses. What is? I, yeah, I it's know. yeah, it's really it's it it's it's acceleration of change, but uh, but it's 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 not just technology drift. So, so essentially, the idea is that if you look back through history, and, and I've, this is a lot of this is my work, and this is why the book took so long. If you look back and you really study the arc of history, you see that a lot of what changed the world and made it better, or at least more sophisticated, and really ultimately did improve life, uh, were innovations, but a particular kind, democratizing innovations. And democratization in this case is has nothing to do with politics. It's the, if you look in the dictionary, it's the second definition. And it's the definition that says making something available to a few, to many, and ultimately to everyone. And one of the examples everybody can quickly wrap their head around is the printing press. Before the printing press, Books were handmade. They were only the wealthy and the clergy had them. Uh, nobody else could afford them. Uh, people finally figured out how to do movable type and did a printing press. And the print then within 40 years, I believe it was 40 years. No, it's the other way around. We had we had 40 million books 
And I think it was about 50 or more years before it took that long. But, but, and suddenly now, and, and, and what the other interesting thing though about how that makes change accelerates is every innovation like that leads to others or spawns others. So in the case of the printing press, the ability to have books led to a demand for literacy, which led to demand for public education. And so you can see how these things compound and they make life more sophisticated and improve life for all of us. But they do come in, uh, in spurts. And, and we're about to go through the greatest spurt in history <laughs> because we have so many democratizing innovations that are some, most driven by technology, but not all of them. I'm going to go uh, quickly from Gutenberg to Twitter. And this is usually a question they ask at the end, but I'm going to ask it at the beginning. So I'm intensely interested in how I can prepare my son for life and for his education and early career. Uh, it's a little unfair. Can you give me a Twitter length message for him very quickly, right. big picture, for what he needs to do over the next 30 years? Discover who you are at your core. What lights you up? You, you have innate talents. What are they? You have innate some take things that are, are not, not then you just don't do them well. What are those? Do you know them? Uh, and then, uh, and then, and when you're planning your life, never stop pursuing knowing more about who you are and what lights you up. Try to figure that out as early as you can in life and follow that, whatever it is. So, uh, the advice I'm giving my grandchildren right now is, yeah, you have to worry about a job, but I can tell you, you're going to live a much longer life. You're going to go through many more jobs and careers. Automation is going to replace a lot of jobs and careers. So you're going to have to retrain, relearn. And, 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 but, but if, so if you find, find an industry or a big, big problem that you'd like to be part of solving. So, they, they always say, well, Papa, what would you pick? <laughs> I said, well, this is not, this is me, but, but, if it, but they're curious. What would you pick? I said, well, I'm fascinated by reusability. I hate the amount of waste we have. I just don't think it's necessary. And there are some great stories out there of what's being done on reusability. I said, I'm just fascinated by it. I said, I'm also fascinated by solar conversion of seawater. Because you do solar conversion of seawater, it's almost cost-free. And we change the world absolutely changed the world because I know from, you know, now I'm living the last few years in the desert, the desert's fertile, just needs water. That's it. So, so I think uh, those are the kinds of things. And then, then go to, you graduate from college, go find out who the leading companies are in that field and beg them for a job, beg them. Doesn't matter. I'll, I'll sweep floors. Doesn't matter. <laughs> just, just, I, this is what I want to devote my life to. There's not a single person worth their salt in a human resources organization that won't hire that kid. <laughs> well, you mentioned the pace of change. And in the book, you say you're concerned that few people really are aware of the degree yeah. of change coming into their lives right. and their careers, and how quickly they're going to need to adapt. Um, give me some examples. How is life going to change really in fundamental ways? Well, there's one, there's one we can see coming right now. I mean, we're, we're living through one right now. We've known... I was on the board of the American Enterprise Institute, and and one of the scholars there 
uh, wrote a book, published it in 2004, but he started it several years before that because I, I knew all about the subject before that. And he talked about how birth rates were falling throughout the world and that, in fact, we have this concept of overpopulation, but it's, in fact, going the other way. And it's going to cause and, and we'll get through it, but it's going to cause some real challenges. Nobody paid attention. Nobody. Even though this book was widely available, nobody paid attention. And suddenly, and, and as proof in point, can you think of any major politician, any politician or any major newscast that spoke to, hey, we got a problem coming because we're not going to have enough people? No. So I do that happened. We woke up one day and there weren't enough pilots. And now there's not enough doctors. And there's and it takes you a long time to get in to see specialists. It's hard. Restaurants are struggling to stay open. So where were we? Well, the reason that happens, it's not that everybody suddenly went stupid. As uh, a uh, matter of fact, uh, Toffler and I once had a discussion we had over that dinner that night when he was here for my board. We talked about this. We can only handle so many things within our range of vision. So we've got, you know, bills to pay. We got work to do. We got to get got to commute home. We got to talk to the kids. And, and we got all that to do, but we don't have time to look up and see what's going on around me. What should I be paying attention to? And he used as an example, well, if you walk across a field and this open field and there were 12 people doing something out there, one was digging a hole, one was sawing wood, this, you comprehend it. You walk across the same field and there's 300 people, that's uh, pretty hard. You walk across the field, there's 3,000. You don't even see it. You're just trying to get through. That's what happens to us in our daily life. And the changes are so profound here. That's why I wrote this book. Just try to summarize it down and make it easy to read so people can comprehend this is the world we're going to live in. How do we get ready for it? And then I laid out seven things that if everybody, if people will just do those seven things. So if your son just does those seven things, he'll, he'll be way ahead uh, of what most people will do. One of the things that I... You mentioned is the major changes uh, is the integration of technology into the human body, Correct. Um, which I, I immediately go to as a science fiction nerd. Oh, cyborgs. Right. Are we really talking about cyborgs or something? A little no, different? not not quite. Uh, it's uh, I mean, there there definitely are. There's 14 companies today, at least at my last count, that are working on implanting chips into the brain, but that's to correct uh, musculoskeletal diseases uh, and and to aid them. And I, they're having some real amazing success. But I don't see any of us going, yeah, sign me up, put a chip in my head. Then we're not going to no. do that. What I do think will happen uh, is we will, uh, we, we the, uh, a better way to think about it, I think, is, uh, and, and it's not so scary to think about it this way. We have the most powerful uh, computer in the world between our ears, every one of us. Science can still hardly fathom the, uh, how powerful it is and what it can do. And we know we don't tap all of it. On the other side, uh, the cloud, the internet and the cloud, uh, cre it has access to almost unlimited computing power and storage. Separating us, what keeps us from powering those two computers in tandem? How fast we can type on a keyboard and how fast we can read a screen. That's not going to last. That hasn't changed since I've been in IT when I was a teenager. That's going to change. And it'll either change by uh, like a super Alexa or a super Siri. We just say what we want. 
but also it's possible if you can imagine uh, something like having the same controls you have on your cell phone. I can turn it off. I can mute it. It's one way unless I say it's two way and treat it like a phone. And now that's just an earpiece. And and we think what we want. It's it basically is signaling the right places in the brain. And I've been told by physicians who work in this field that the functional MRIs are letting us learn more and more about what parts of the brain activate. And then it's just a radio signal. It's the right, it's the right wow. signal. So it's possible. What, how exactly it'll manifest, I know, but I can just pretty well bet you that, uh, well, I will bet you that, that 15 or 20 years from now, we're not going to be typing on keyboards and screens. And that's going to, that's, that's the good for that is think of all the people in the world who today, either for physical reasons or what are because they, they, they don't have any uh, idea how a computer is supposed to operate. They don't have access to all the power that that has. Now they would because all they have to do is talk or think. You mentioned, for example, that uh, the chances for us living longer and thus needing to work longer are greater. They are. And they're, they're substantial. And a, and a good way to think about it is uh, we doubled life expectancy in the last 120 years. I don't know anybody credible in the field of science or medicine who says it thinks it's going to take another 120 to double it again. So we'll more likely double it in 60 or 30. Uh, we don't know. But but the technologies that are creating the ability to prevent disease before it becomes disease says we're likely to live longer or we're going to live longer. And living and working longer right now sounds like, oh, <laughs> But that's because a lot of us do work we don't like. But the future of work is not the work we do today. The future of work is going to be much more creative, problem-solving, hopefully great problems that have never been solvable before, as well as smaller ones, and complex human relationships. And the reason that's going to be the future of work is the other work, which is repetitive and physically demanding or physically dangerous, we will automate out of existence, or at least there won't be so many jobs like that. And that's going to free a lot of human talent to do more higher value work. And if we can, our lifestyles change and we can live and work from anywhere and it's not quite so restrictive, why would we want to quit? And, th and that's what I see a lot of people. I honestly know almost no people who are truly retired. Almost none. Everybody's doing something that they enjoy, and that's what I call in the book refinement. That means you're doing what you want to do in the way you want to do it every day. But that doesn't mean you're sitting around. Most, very few people want to just sit around and put their feet up. They want to do something worthwhile. You also say uh, the most of our life or probably a greater share of our life is going to be spent in the digital or virtual realm. I mean, our shopping, our socializing, our working and in some ways, since it will be in the digital realm, uh, we will be able to accomplish so much more. For example, uh, being able to instantaneously translate a language. Right, right. And already, I, I have, I, I speak decent uh, uh, conversational Italian, meaning it's I'm like talking to a third grader. Now you have to stop and think, okay, how long do I like talking to a third grader? But but my Italian friends tolerate me. So I speak Italian, but I, I've taken my family to my friends uh, over in Italian. And, you know, I was originally thinking, oh boy, I'm going to have to translate. 20 minutes, my kids are talking to them through Google Translate, and they're both using the audio feature, the Italians and the, and everybody's doing just fine. Give that 10 years, you won't even have that. 
And that's going to be wonderful. That's going to be a great way to learn new cultures, immerse yourself in new cultures, understand people aren't as different as we think. So that those are good things. So to get to these places <laughs> that we're talking about, it requires like technological innovation. Um, and one of the main points of the book is that our economies and institutions will be reshaped by, you mentioned several things. I'll run through them real quick. Cloud computing, artificial intelligence, uh, quantum computing, uh, faster and safer transportation options, virtual working, demographic changes, and, uh, and just uh, innovations like 3D printing. Can we hit a few of those and you tell me what you see happening? Yeah, I, the ones that I think are the are the 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 most uh, out of a and, and that's a selected pared down list and i would invite you know your listeners if if they ever, you really want to get a taste of innovation just go out and google take a pick any industry you know and, and google what are the leading innovations predicted for that industry you'd be amazed every industry is going through so much innovation that it's almost mind-boggling so I was trying to boil it down. And so for your, you know, for your listeners, I would say the ones that are absolutely huge, uh, that are very near term, for example, artificial intelligence. Uh, I was an ex-IT guy and, uh, uh, and, and so was my second son, Larry, and he was Purdue graduate and so forth. Uh, and we are astonished by how different uh, artificial intelligence is. As a business person, uh, a, a real start or average person, a simple way to think about it is Legos. Uh, <laughs> because used to, we wrote a lot of new code and that took time and effort and years of testing and so forth. Nowadays, a lot of artificial intelligence code gets written into, you know, whatever you might call wizards, bots, and people share those. If it's not something that's got any reason to be uh, confidential or private, they share it and they put it up there. So when you get ready to develop a new system, you don't have to do everything brand new. Uh, and, and, and you don't have to buy somebody's system and modify it. You just start building a new one and the amount of new code you've written. So that simple change is huge. And, and you don't have to go find it. The software finds it for you. So, you know, that's, it's, it's really so it's a much faster, much cheaper way to develop a system and then it's easier to test but then that's just the beginning because it learns and when you have software that learns it means less maintenance it means you can use and relearn and retrain that software to do many many things often beyond its orig original purpose that's huge and 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 that's how we're going to it's not going to we don't know if it'll completely offset it but that's how we're going to uh, address a lot of the problems with people shortages now that we are in a declining population throughout the developed world already and and the under lesser developed world is is catching up that we're declining in population and that means we don't have enough people so we we mentioned we got a pilot shortage physician shortage and many others we're going to have to automate a lot of those jobs so we're going to have to figure out a way to extend a physician's ability to handle a lot more patients and a lot of that's going to be through artificial intelligence so that one's huge you already meant we talked about the brain to computer interface that, you know, uh, we won't always use keyboards and screens. We'll be able to process much faster. That's actually going to change us as human beings because we're going to be able to, to think and act much faster. 
but we may not be able to act more wisely. And that's where we have to we have to grow as as individuals. The the cloud, which today about four and a half billion of the world has a smartphone and is and has access to, to Wi-Fi. Within just a few years, five to seven years, maybe 10 at the outside, virtually everyone will have access to that cloud. And it's happening very fast as we watch uh, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk uh, compete for uh, putting out the cloud. Okay, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. This is the IBJ Podcast. Taft, today's modern law firm. With more than 625 attorneys across 11 offices, we provide solutions to the business issues facing middle market and emerging companies alike. We do this through a highly collaborative and inclusive team approach. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. All right, we're back with this week's edition of the IBJ podcast and my discussion with Ben Lytle about his new book, The Potentialist. Quantum computers, I mean, I, at one point I read the definition of that. I can't remember. All it means to me is that uh, whatever we think of as lightning fast will not look like a turtle. Exactly. I mean, the processing power will be unimaginable. Yeah, it is, and and it, and it's, and I would hardly call myself a quantum expert because just you know it's so. But but I'm like you, trying to wrap my head around and say, how can I explain this to people? For anyone who knows you know anything about computers, it's basically all built on on and off, zero and one. And so no matter how fast the chips are and everything else, when you boil it down to it, that's really what's going on at the basic level. It's going on or off, on or on or off. On. Well, quantum adds at least one more. Both. <laughs> oh, really? Or neither. That sounds fast. Yeah. And so you can imagine you do the math yeah. on what that means, and suddenly you're talking about things exponentially faster. The good and the bad of that is we don't, we'll have to figure out uh, ways to make things more secure because, uh, you know, when, when, when new technology comes along, it's not just the good guys that get it. And so we always have to be a step ahead of the bad guys who want to do harm to others uh, but with the same technology. The biggest question I had at, at this point in the book, um, where, I mean, so much of what is going to be changing and that some of the opportunities for us uh, in the next 30 years relying on, on computers is whether or not truly technology would be democratized. I mean, we've had, we've had home internet access, I mean, solid for 25 years. But when we got to the pandemic, suddenly we realized, wait a second, they're low-income people, you know, in the city, people who live a mile away from me, who don't have essentially a functioning uh, online connection. Yeah. Um, and we recently uh, referenced a story uh, about internet providers in, in cities all over America who were actually throttling low-income areas. I don't know, throttling is actually a technical term. I don't want necessarily want to say that. But people in the higher-income areas had much, much faster internet speed. People in lower-income areas had slower speed and thus could not, during the pandemic, could not participate in a Zoom discussion. Or they couldn't like have their kids studying and do, them doing a Zoom discussion at the same time. 
it, it seems to me that, that there's a flaw there. And that is it possible that, that this will always be the case, that the people with greater means will have more access to premium technology? It's possible, but I don't think so. And I'll tell you one reason why. To, and to me, it's a commanding reason, but I'd, I'd love to hear from economists. But, but when I you know, really understood uh, you know, uh, uh, that what, was, what, what Ben Wattenberg's book said and that we were, in fact, going to have a declining population, uh, at least through most of the world, probably ultimately everywhere, I started asking all the economists I run into, how do you run an economy? How do you make an economy grow when there's fewer people? Since consumer spending drives most economies, how do we do that? And, you know, they'd look at me kind of funny and they sometimes gave me a lot of, but I think the answer is everybody has to make more money. For the first time, it's going to be in everybody's interest for everybody to be more prosperous. So if we look at the parts of the world today that maybe don't have very low per capita income and they don't have internet access. What's the fastest way to turn them into entrepreneurs and buyer and, 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 and consumers is get them internet access. And, to give, and, and the other part of that is device dependent. Today, we're still very heavily device dependent. I mean, a, an iPhone's, you know, a thousand bucks or something. And even if you get the cheapest smartphone, you're still talking several hundred bucks uh, and tablets are expensive. They're all coming down and they've done a great job of getting it down. But I like to dream of that earpiece I talked about to where it's, it's the giveaway. It's getting it's once they're on once they're on there and they're buying and they're consuming and they're learning and they're using that we all benefit. And so I think I think it's headed in the right direction. I don't think it's headed towards greater disparity. I think it's to where it's going to be in everybody's interest to eliminate that disparity. Oh, and one more notion about about equity or, or equality. Uh, I mean, you, you talk quite a bit about automation uh, eliminating, you know, some of the more. Uh, I don't want to say mindless, but some of you know the more automatable jobs. But are we always going to need to have some labor-intensive jobs in service and manufacturing and hospitality? And I mean, and those jobs typically don't pay a whole lot of money. I mean, are we going to end up in sort of a classic dystopian situation where you know we've got an upper class and we've got a low lower class? Again, I don't think that's. I don't think that has to be the case. I, I think it's what's what's tending to. We're falling into an either or. Uh, I think people will choose. There are people who love working with their hands. There are people who love working outside. There are people who uh, love fixing things. Uh, you know, thank God for them because I can't. You know, so but but but. But and so for those folks, we will want them to succeed and we'll need people who do those jobs, but they're not going to be the jobs of today. I mean, if you think of just watch what's happening in your home, everything's becoming something electronic. And and if you watch, you know, you watch the people doing uh, doing a manual labor jobs, they all got a smartphone. They're all using it. Uh, so it's not going to be the same kind of, you know, backbreaking, you know, dangerous work, uh, because I think we're going to figure out a way to get, get rid of those jobs because people are too valuable. Remember, we have no mindset, no mindset for people are more valuable every year. Think about that because we got fewer of them. Uh, 
That is a really different mindset. And that's one of the things we're talking about teaching your, your, your kids. Start thinking of the most valuable thing in the world is, 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 is another human being. And, and that we should be always thinking that way. But now we're going to have a re- more reasons than ever to think that way. One of the threads I, I picked up on was the future of, of wealth and, and asset accumulation. At some point towards the middle of the book, you talk about the potential for it, us, instead of owning things, us to essentially subscribing to things or sort of life as a service, <laughs> if, that's, if that's something. This view will be dis- disappointing to somebody who just got a 30-year mortgage. <laughs> Among other things that are disappointing about 30-year mortgages right now. Can you clarify that for, for me at all? I mean, yeah. do you think that's going to be widespread? It's a, it's a choice. It's not going to be. I mean, that's one of the things about thinking in the future. It's not either or. It's it, Everything is about expanding choice. Remember, go back to what democratization does. It makes more things available to more people, and that means more choices. And so... Today, we have much more, you know, we have many more lifestyle choices than our, my parents would have dreamed of. Uh, and there will be many, many more we can't even imagine. Some people will become fascinated. How many? I don't know. Uh, some people will become fascinated with living and working in other cultures around the world. And they will want to do that. That will become their life. Uh, and as transportation becomes cheaper, faster, safer, uh, physical transportation, as well as virtual transportation, I can experience something without going there. Uh, I think there's going to be a major industry for rent rather than than buy, uh, sort of an advanced VRBO that I want this house three months a year, uh, and I want to live here, 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 and there. I want to live on four continents every year, uh, and and uh, and I don't want to really own a car. Why would I try to buy a new car new time? But I don't want to pay rental car prices either. So I want long-term rentals that I think these things are begun, there's going to be a demand for them. And in fact, there's already a couple I'm aware of where uh, basically you can rent from an individual uh, this service and it connects you with individuals who are willing to let you drive their luxury car for three months. And, uh, and, and, you know, just like people do their house and they, you know, they VRBO their house. So I think we're going to see more of that. How big it'll become, I don't know, but I think they'll, will the choice will be yours. So as you say, uh, you know, we enter this period of, of new kinds of work that will be more creative, more innovative, uh, involve complex problem solving uh, and the complexities, as you say, of human relationships. Uh, can we go, go through some of those points? You, you think, for example, that we're going to have more entrepreneurial career choices than we currently do now in more typical employment yeah, situations? I mean, think about, I, I'll take just the last 20 years. The number of, the, the ease by which you can set up your own business, you know, with things like Spotify, and, and, and you can get all the services to support that business. Uh, when 40, 50 years ago, you were really dreaming if you thought you could build a citywide business, much less a nationwide or worldwide business. Now, nobody even blinks an eye at it. The amount of money available, the different choices of how you can get that business uh, financed uh, have multiplied exponentially, and that's not going to stop. What's really changing, uh, and I quoted a, a gentleman in the book, 
who who was a, a, a very successful CEO and entrepreneur, and he said, "I think we've crossed the the, the chasm where uh, being an entrepreneur is no more risky than being a corporate employee." And I think he's probably right because if you're an entrepreneur, particularly let's say if you're a if you are a uh, an independent contractor, I don't time my I'm, I don't time my uh, my future to one company. I might have five companies that I work for as an independent contractor. And now I've got I, I've diversified my risk by <laughs> by five. And so I think people are going to find and, and and it won't necessarily, you know, we always think of the most risky thing like as a startup. But uh, but today uh, you have enough uh, companies backing uh, you know that are that are being backed by very substantial financial firms that uh, that and you let's say you become a a really great controller uh, today in one of those uh, you become a sort of a made person that you can work in an entrepreneurial environment and succeed. Well, you can just bounce around between their portfolio companies and make a good career out of it and be picking up equity in every move. So it's a different way to look at life, I think. Okay. Uh, simply one of, one of the big changes is the extent to which we rely on advanced communication and collaboration tools, uh, especially to bring people together to, to right. solve problems. And in collaborating in that environment, uh, it sounds like it's a skill mm -hmm. and that maybe we, we just do not have, or right. many of us still do not have. Right. Tell me about that. Tell me, um, you yeah. Know, how do I? How do I get my six-year-old moved on the path? Well, he he probably is already better than you are, truthfully. And I don't mean and me. And by he would he'd wipe me off the map. It, where I really saw this, I mean, I began to you know you began to visualize what does a because a, 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 today many corporations are simply white-collar factories. And they're run by the general and there's lieutenants and so forth. I don't think that's the future. I think it's going to be much more. Look what happened to the military. Military is now really at its most effective with highly trained special teams, special forces. I think that's more of the model. And we'll have networks of special forces and they'll be dynamic and we'll put teams together. And you say, well, where would kids get the skill set? Gaming. If you watch how gamers play, and believe me, I was the original one of the original worst skeptics. I thought, what in the world? What are what in the world are grown people doing sitting with these with these you know playing with these joysticks? But it's really much more than that. I watched um, one of my one of my grandsons who was really big into into gaming. He had friends all over the world, and they didn't just get together and play the game. They would get together and talk and be, do what teenagers do. They were buddies and they would talk and stuff beforehand. And then they would get on and play together. And sometimes they would play against each other. And then sometimes they would play other teams. And uh, and then uh, afterwards they would, you know, and, and a lot of these kids he never met. Most of these kids he never met uh, because all they had was a voice connect. They didn't have Zoom like we do today. And I, I asked him, I said, what was, what was the real attraction there? What, what? He said, well, first of all, you know, you're really good at something. I mean, the rankings, because they rank all these things. And, and, and you knew you were really good at something. And you knew everybody on your team was really good. And you were just trying to see how much better can we get. Think, how, how far is that from business? At the core. 
So it wouldn't surprise me to see, instead of strategic planning meetings like we all remember with the whiteboards and stuff like that, that we'll be sitting around playing games. We'll be gaming against our competition. And we'll be will be and and when we're trying to figure out a supply chain matter of fact that's a, that has actually happened uh, where some people are solving their supply chain problems by gaming it running it through a gaming system a gaming software and lest everyone think this guy's a complete loon uh, <laughs> if I am so is Microsoft they paid 50 billion dollars for a gaming company and it wasn't to produce more games Microsoft is a business software company, and they're looking at how do we turn this kind of stuff into workable tools so that companies really can uh, be be networks, virtual companies, and connect with each other. And that model, the gaming model, mm -hmm. where you've got, you know, what I imagine, guys with headsets and computers right. working together to solve a problem, though they could be continents away. Right. Sounds like a more natural fit for you know this this world that you described. Yeah, where people can is. live anywhere. Exactly, yeah. and so so I want the best team. I don't really, and particularly now, if language isn't a problem, and we learn how to, we have cultural cues so that we make sure we understand not just the language but the culture behind the language, so we don't mess up with the language. I want the best team. I don't really care where you're from. And so if I'm trying to solve a particular problem, we're trying to break the code. What's that last thing we need to do to have solar energy-free conversion of seawater? And we're trying to solve that problem. We don't care. Now you mentioned before, your, your method of learning is autodidactic. You teach yourself. Some people are better at going to school. I enjoy going to school. Now, and in the way that many of us envision young people, uh, preparing for their you know future lives is going to college. Do you foresee higher education still being relevant, or is that going to go through some disruption as well? There's no question it's going to be disrupted at all levels. Uh, and I know this won't be popular with some folks, but if you look at the technologies that come are coming, if you look at what they're capable of doing. Just look at that and say 30 years from now, we're still going to be having a sage on a stage. We have somebody up and they're going to be lecturing. To it's, just, it's just fantasy because it's not going to be the best way to learn. Major thing. One of the big breakthroughs for educational is personalization. Kids are different. We all learn different. But we're put in a class and the teacher, poor teacher, is sitting up there and they're trying to take these 15 very different personalities who learn very different or they already have different bases of learning. And they're trying to create a class environment that moves everybody along as good as possible. Why do we have to do that? We have the technology. I mean, Netflix is a good example. We have the technology to personalize and know exactly how you learn, exactly what you know now, exactly what you want to learn, and the pace at which you can learn and the hours of the day you're most productive at learning. We could get it down to exactly that and deliver that to you in a very specialized way. The other big change is why do we think of learning as something we do from uh, six to, to 27? It should be lifelong. If we're living longer lives, going through multiple careers, multiple jobs, we're gonna have to relearn and retrain. So we wanna shift the focus from early years learning, we'll still do that, but to lifelong learning. And we also want to shift not from just packing your head with information and knowledge because that's becoming a commodity. 
we want to pack your head with how to use it wisely for yourself and everybody else. I think I forgot to mention, this is the uh, the first of three books. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you started working on the second? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I actually, I actually laid all three books out and had a lot of material because I've been, in a way, I've been working on this set of books my whole life. So I've got many, many years of material, interviews of people I thought were exceptional and uh and uh, and so I laid all three books out before I ever started. I've got uh, a lot of material. So yeah, I'm in the I'm in the sec. I've just uh, just finished the 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 second draft of the first two chapters. So uh, so I'm I'm often and uh, my goal is still to hope to publish the second one uh, next year. Uh, but I'm gonna have to work really hard at it. But uh, I'm, I'm uh, my goal is to get one a year out for the next three years. Okay, well let's pencil that one in. <laughs> You'll be back, I assume. I hope so. I'm sure planning on it. Well, thanks for taking so much time to help uh, explain the book. I really appreciate it. It's a great read. Great. Thank you very much. I appreciate being here. My thanks again to Ben Lytle. And folks, before you get on with the rest of your week, there are several stories in the latest issue of IBJ I want to draw to your attention. First up, a large team of public officials and private partners is engaged in a high-stakes battle to land a big chunk of federal funding to establish Northwest Indiana as one of a handful of hydrogen hubs planned around the country. IBJ's Susan Orr explains why the most common element represents a major boon for the state. Also in this week's issue, John Russell explains how an Indianapolis health equipment firm is trying to overhaul the way brain surgeons do their job. And we present the winner of this year's Michael Carroll Award. It's Allison Melanchthon, who most folks know from running the Indianapolis Host Committee for the 2012 Super Bowl, but who also has made major contributions across Indianapolis's sports organizations for nearly 40 years. And again, you can read these stories in the latest print edition of IBJ or online, of course, at IBJ.com. I will say that it's easier to access all of the latest local news about business and politics and all of IBJ's data on Central Indiana's business community and economy if you're a subscriber. And here's a new development. We have wrapped all of IBJ's content together with all of the stories, columns, and podcasts from our sister publication, Inside Indiana Business. And that works out to just about $3 per week for actionable information about every notable business development across the state. You won't find Indiana's story told with this kind of breadth and depth anywhere else. Just go to ibj.com and click on the subscribe button. And thanks again for making time this week for the IBJ podcast. I'm Mason King. Hang in there, everybody. We'll be back again next week.